Hey, you're listening to About Time, a podcast produced by Timely, the world's first AI-powered time tracking app. For an automatic record of all of your time, head to timelyapp.com. In five episodes, we're going to wade through the existential mess of time, the universal force that brings structure and meaning to our lives, but whose existence we still can't be sure of. From gravitational fields to the workings of the human brain, we'll explore what we know about time so far. We'll meet a lot of experts along the way, from physicists to psychologists, to help figure out whether time is something tangibly real or something humanity has socially created. There's a lot of ground to cover, so let's start somewhere near the beginning. I'm Emily, and this is The Language of Time. Language is humanity's main tool for exploring time. It gives us the means to discuss it and theorise what it's all about. And as a species, we're pretty obsessed with the concepts. Time is the most frequently used noun in the English language, with other time-based words like day and year following close behind in the top ten. But for something we discuss so frequently, what are we actually talking about when we talk about time? And since there are so many languages and linguistic systems around the world, can we be sure we are all talking about the same thing? In this episode, we'll take a very brief look at representations of time across different cultures to explore how the world talks about it and see whether the language we speak can shape how we understand time. Have you ever noticed how dynamic time is? It can crawl and drag, fly, speed up, slow down, forever contracting and expanding as some highly elastic thing we experience. But at the same time, it can also flow continuously and steadily outside of us from some cosmic source, measurable by clocks and calendars. These two concepts capture one of the biggest paradoxes within our representation of time in the West, which we'll return to throughout the series. One is time as something subjective that is personally experienced. The other is time as something physically absolute that exists outside of us. The first concept of time can be felt, and so we give it an emotional personality. It's a healer, a great physician, the thief of youth, and the greatest innovator, simultaneously our friend and tormentor. The second concept is external to us. It's a real physical substance, so we give it a quantity and speak of spending it, wasting it, finding, keeping, losing and cheating it as if it were a commodity. It becomes an ultimate benchmark for value, against which things are time-tested, time-worn and time-honoured. We still exist in relation to time, but it is outside of us. While these two concepts of time are completely different, we conceptualise them using a similar language. And that is the language of space. When you think about it, this makes a lot of sense. 
Our main experience of the world is physical. We accomplish things through sensory perception and motor action, through doing things. And since time is so abstract, perhaps we can understand it better by using metaphors that draw on concrete physical things. Space gives us a useful graphical model for understanding time. It gives us an imaginary axis for ordering events, a direction and a movement, as well as a container for mentally mapping its passage. But even within the metaphor of space, which many believe to be universal to all languages and cultures, there are some pretty interesting differences in how the world's languages conceptualize time. Let's start with the issue of direction. Imagine you have four cards in your hand, showing a baby, an adolescent, an adult, and a senior. If I asked you to put them in order, how would you arrange them? If you're an English speaker, you would probably put the baby to the left and place the other cards in a line to the right of it. We see time as moving a linear distance from left, the past, to right, the future. And when we place ourselves on this axis, events to our left are spoken of as behind us, and events on the right would be ahead of us. Many European languages encode this directionality. For example, the French word for future, avenir, means to come, and Danish, framtil, literally means front time. But if you were a Mandarin Chinese speaker, you'd probably arrange them vertically, with the baby at the top and the senior at the bottom. Much like the Mandarin writing system, the timeline is flipped vertically, with the past being up and the future being down. So that next week is literally translated as down week, and last week is up one week. If you spoke Aymara, an Andean language in Peru, you'd keep a horizontal axis but place everything left of the baby. This is because for these communities, the future lies behind us and the past ahead. So the word for future means behind time. The idea is that the past is already known, so we can see it just as anything that happens in front of us, whereas we can't look into the future just as we can't see behind us. But things get interesting if you're from the Australian Aboriginal community, Pompura. When researchers gave this group the same card task, they arranged their cards using all of the previous methods. But it wasn't completely random. This group of people still conceptualizes time in terms of space, but they simply don't use the spatial terms of left and right. Instead, they use absolute direction ordered from east to west. So when seated facing south, they would order cards left to right, and when facing east, vertically towards their body. They not only know their orientation, but use it to construct representations of time. And rather than being fixed, their spatial representation of time directly relates to their actual physical placing within their environment. So not only do different languages code time's direction differently, some cultures conceptualize time and space in ways others cannot. On to another concept of physical space we use for time, quantity. In English, we measure time's quantity as a distance. Using our horizontal axis, we speak of it as a length, describing a short day or a long week. 
but languages like Greek, Spanish and Italian prefer a volume-based representation. They speak of large time and much time and speak of a full day as if time exists within a container. Even among these related languages, we see interesting differences in how we represent duration. But that itself is not the most exciting thing here. What's more interesting is that the imagery our language chooses can actually affect our ability to estimate duration itself. Here's another experiment for you. If you were shown an animation of a line moving slowly, followed by another animation of a different line moving quickly, do you think you could easily pick out that you were actually watching both lines for the same amount of time? Research by linguist Emmanuel Buland suggests that you'd actually run into some trouble if the language you spoke used length-based metaphors for duration. He gathered together some Swedes and Spaniards and asked them to estimate the duration taken for both lines. He then asked the same, but used two animations showing containers filling up at different rates. Even though the time duration was the same across all animations, the majority of participants were misled by the time metaphor used in their native language. Spaniards, who used volume-based duration metaphors, found it hard estimating time across the container animation, but relatively easy for the line animations and vice versa for the Swedes, who used length-based metaphors. But Emmanuel went a step further and asked bilingual Swedish and Spanish speakers to do the same task. Interestingly, participants showed they could flexibly use both ways of marking duration depending on the language in which the question was asked. So not only can the language we speak shape the structure of non-linguistic mental representations of time, at least in small motor tasks like estimating duration, potentially the more languages we speak, the more cognitively flexible we are in how we think about time. We also give time emotion. But languages don't always agree on what is moving. Do we move through time or does time move towards us? There are actually two neat linguistic terms to explore this, moving ego and moving time. In the first, we, the observer, move towards a fixed time event, saying that we are getting closer to Christmas. In the second, the event instead moves relative to us. So Christmas is approaching. In English, we're pretty flexible. We can represent time as a static entity that we move through, as well as a dynamic one that moves around us. But some languages have a stronger preference to one view. Mandarin Chinese, for example, has been found to rely more heavily on time-moving than ego-moving metaphors than English. Why the two viewpoints exactly? Well, there's certainly a cultural aspect at work here. The tools we use to encode and track the movement of a perceived external time also affects the way we speak about it. Take the idea of the calendar, for example. It helps us fix events in a closed, repeating system. It gives us an annual, monthly and weekly cycle, 
a set of units that repeat themselves over and over again. It sits alongside our open-ended horizontal timeline view of time and gives us a cyclical language of space. So we can say that Christmas is coming round again. This is not unique to English speakers, of course. The cyclical motion of time is central to Buddhist, Hindu and Taoist beliefs and also dominated the West in early Greek and Roman periods. But the example shows how the cognitive technologies we create to map time actually construct how our languages represent time's movement. So, so far the language of time seems pretty straightforward. In order to make the abstract concept of time understandable, we've taken the language of space, a physical concrete thing we can relate to. Within this metaphor, our languages represent time as either moving or fixed, with a direction, a quantity and location within space. But what if I now told you that all of this wasn't entirely true? It's not wrong exactly, but it's perhaps only part of the language picture. The spatial representation of time we've just explored is often used to prove that all cultures essentially understand time the same way, that the concept of a true flowing time is universal throughout all language, despite the different ways we may represent it. But a whole group of linguists beg to disagree, and they have found some pretty incredible evidence for their argument in the heart of the Amazon. In the remotest depths of Western Amazonia lives a small tribe of about 115 people known as the Amandawa. Official contact with them was not made until 1986, where it was learned that they continued to use an indigenous language to communicate. Continued contact has led to findings that seem startling to Western ears. Namely, they have no word for time in their language. That is, they do not have words for year, week or month. They don't operate by clocks or calendrical systems the West would understand. They don't use a verbal tense system or use motion to talk about time. There are no metaphors for moving ego or moving time, and there is no apparatus to support the idea of a constantly flowing external time. The spatial concept of time we hold to be universal just doesn't exist for them. But that's not to say they have no concept for time. In fact, they have a rather rich grammar and lexicon for it. As Chris Sinha, one of the researchers leading the work with the Amandawa, explains. There's nothing strange about the Amandawa language. It has a system of spatial postpositions. It has grammatical particles which indicates past and future. Time is there in the language, but the words that are then used to talk about time are not the same ones as are used to talk about space. Instead of using spatial time sequences, time for the Amandawa appears to be entirely event-based. They speak of time in relation to seasonal changes and harvest events. And instead of celebrating birthdays or counting age, the Amandawa change their names several times across their lifetime to indicate different life stages, social position and clan status. In event-based time, time intervals within days are defined by different activities that take place, instead of absolute countable durations that we use in our clocks and calendars. They are not community without time. They are community who has event-based time. 
Dr. Vera da Silva Sinha has expanded her work on the Amandawa with a new study on the indigenous languages of three separate Brazilian tribes, the Hunikui, Awiti, and Kaimura. Like the Amandawa, they use natural cues to speak about time. There is a dry season and a rain season, and each is indexalized by the position of the sun, the intensity of the sunlight, and the level of water in the rivers. The intensity of the rainfall and the coolness of the breeze, for example. And another thing very interesting in the community is the constellation, the description and the position and appearance of stars in constellations. It is the appearance or disappearance of natural phenomena in the world around these tribes that indicates time. Time intervals derive from the names of natural events including the shape, size and colour of the moon, the position of constellations, the position of the sun, birdsong, monkey calls, the sound of cicadas, the ripening of forest fruits and the movement of animals. But these tribes also use socially created life stages to indicate time. Instead of age, they see life in terms of a process of learning with different life stages. Each stage represents a certain knowledge or social responsibility. So a young person who has acquired adult knowledge and responsibility will be seen as a fully grown person. Biological change like puberty and the appearance of wrinkles also inform these stages. But crucially, they are not seen as having a fixed duration as points on a timeline. Life is just a sequence of states of being age and anything that can be counted with numbers doesn't feature in their time. All three cultures use small number systems based on one and two, which they combine to generate three and four. For numbers larger than four, hands, fingers and feet are used in combination, and this makes up the entire numeric system. It feeds into a picture where counting and numerical value just aren't very important. They don't speak of days, weeks, years, or anything that can be counted in a metric system. They understand time without ever using a timeline. For this community, past and future events are conceptualized in terms of embodied mental capacities, which use memory, anticipation, intention, imagination, and perception, but not in a timeline. For Awiti and Kaimura speakers, the past is not behind them, it is in their eyes, and the future is in front of their eyes. They draw on vision as the domain for mental processes of thinking about an imagined or remembered world. For the Hunikui, future events are in the head, the location of the mind and thinking, and the past is in the heart. Instead of a timeline with spatial direction, these communities embody past and future in mental capacities. That doesn't mean they can't understand concepts of spatial or metric time, though. All three communities are bilingual and use spatial time concepts in Brazilian Portuguese. Intercultural contact with metric time society also shows. These tribes have adopted hybrid calendars as works of art in their communities, but do not use them to index time. The most important thing I, I have to emphasize, these are not people without time. These are people who have own experience and understand time in a different way. 
It's not that they can't understand the idea of a spatial, eternal time. It's just that their languages don't pick it out as an object of reflection, which in turn shows that our metric vision of a constant flowing time is far from universal. It's just one way of interacting with time that our cultures have created with cognitive tools like calendars and clocks. Just focus on that single word, time. In English, these four letters contain a whole lot of different meanings. The time has come. It's time for action. Time goes by. We called it time at midday. This handful of phrases all use the same word to signify different things. And in doing so, by using one word for all, English gives the illusion of unity to the concept of time, which many other languages do not. Then there's the issue of the cultural systems we've manufactured to order time in our societies. As we have seen, the Amazonian tribes do not use clocks or calendars or other mechanisms to mark units of a constant passing time. But in the West, we're bursting with the stuff. Graphs, timelines, hourglasses, sundials, clocks, calendars. We have created tons of time referencing instruments that apply a countable unit to time. And they shape the way we think and verbalize time without us realizing it. It should come as no great surprise that cultures using the axis metaphor of time use the same direction for time's movement as that found in their writing systems. That the organizational patterns that our cultures develop directly impact how we represent time. There's one final area we need to discuss, grammar. Specifically, the role tense plays in how we indicate and order time. English, like most European languages, is a tensed language. By giving the verbs in our sentences different tenses, we can directly express the basic time of an event, whether past, present or future. But many languages do not use tense at all. Thai, Mandarin Chinese and Mayan languages, as well as the Amazonian language Vera has studied, are treated as tenseless languages. And others, like Japanese, only use two, that of past and non-past. So how do they indicate time sequences and construct past and future? Essentially, tenseless languages use a lot of inference. While they might use a time word to give context to a sentence, saying, I fly to London tomorrow, for example, it's often not necessary to include one. Instead, the timing of a scenario can be gleaned from a thing linguists like to call aspect. With aspect, it isn't about when an action happened, but whether or not that action was completed in the time frame the speaker is using. In Mandarin Chinese, aspect tends to follow this basic pattern. Present is implied by unbounded situations, so where something is still ongoing. And past is implied by bounded ones, where something has concluded. Future situations require a bit more information, like time adverbs, tomorrow, or future-oriented verbs, like to plan or to expect. 
So while some languages don't use a tensed grammar, it doesn't mean speakers can't locate events in time and are trapped in some eternal present. Nor does it mean that tensed grammars are the best way of interacting with time, or that we should be limited to three. The African language Bamileke de Shang, for example, uses 11. It shows us that the structure of time is far more complex than the absolute categories of past, present and future allow. Our grammar can't always flex to acknowledge that past and future can have a relative or local meaning. That a situation that is past for me, for example, can still be present for you. So what can we take from all of this? How can we understand the multitude of different grammars, referencing structures and conceptual metaphors in the world's language for time? Is it even right to speak of a universal concept of time? Or do different worldviews and cultural frameworks make it more appropriate to speak about languages of time, plural? Well, firstly, we can definitively say that the spatial metaphor of time we're so familiar with in English is not universal to all cultures. Space and time are closely connected, but we should be cautious in assuming that there is something called a kind of metaphorical relationship between a whole domain called space and a whole domain called time. And we can't say that an absence of our spatial and metric conception of time means people in event-based cultures don't have time. In all cultures, people have some concept of time. In all languages, express concept of time. So there are no people who live without time. However, not everyone or everybody has the same concept of time. So there is no universal concept of time in this sense. We have to instead understand that our spatial metric view of time is itself a cultural construction. Our very idea of time is a result of the way in which we've historically constructed artefacts for measuring time. And this has given us a concept of time as a domain which is then represented as a line which can then be segmented and you can count the segments. And since we are so used to talking about time in countable terms, we seem to have completely ignored another way of understanding it. Event-based time. Event-based time is all around us. Why has nobody said this before? It's like there, but nobody's really noticed it. We seem to have forgotten that our languages also use event-based time. We can arrange to talk about something at lunch, go somewhere in spring, and indicate duration by the amount of time it takes to smoke a cigarette or drink a cup of tea. Arguably, event time is more universal than the concept of metric time. If you want to persist on the universal approach to understand time, I would say event-based time is everywhere. No language have event-based time, but not all languages have a metrical time. The quantities we can perceive, observe and measure around us hugely inform how we interact with time. It is change within these that help us reference and index it, and what we choose to focus on largely comes down to culture and our specific location in the world. Language and culture is fundamental to understand the, the concept of time. We would not be able to think about or to talk about metrical time without clocks and calendars, for example. 
in the same way they would not be able to talk about the sun if they don't have the vision of the environment they, they have, right? Language shape culture and culture shape language. You can't just say the way you speak affect the way you think. You can't speak without culture. The sheer difference in how the world speaks about time is a testament to the richness of culture within it. Every person at any given moment is embedded in a cultural and linguistic context, which supports certain ways of thinking. The more we open ourselves to different cultures and languages, the more we seek to expand our own culturally specific vocabulary of time. been listening to About Time, a podcast produced by Timely, the world's first AI-powered time tracking app. Join me next time, where I'll be speaking to world-renowned physicist Carlo Rivelli to explore exactly how this same need for relativity transformed the world of science. We'll tackle some of the biggest theories shaping the physics of time to see how time ultimately has a lot more to do with ourselves than the universe. If you like what you heard, leave us a review, share it with someone else, or download the episode to relive it all again at timelyapp.com slash about time. Thanks for listening and thanks for your time.